0: Patrick Darm's
1: Anton Porras desu
0: and we have Tyler Van Fossen returning to the podcast.
2: Glad to be here for another classic movie.
0: This is absolutely a classic to the three of us.
1: Yeah, I uh, I, I gave a very bad Japanese translation for my name for my intro, just in honor of that. Out of
0: respect to my own
1: ego, I'm not going to attempt any Japanese during, during po- the. Uh, It'll
2: be like Sean Connery the, the whole movie and re- respond to everything in phonetic Japanese.
1: don't you fuck with me (laughs) or even or even wesley snipes
0: (laughs) uh yeah he he didn't didn't do a bad job to the listeners this is going to be the second of our uh unofficial anniversary series in the third season of why wasn't it better we began last week with the 20th anniversary of the league of extraordinary gentlemen which also starred sir sean connery and we felt why not continue with another connery film it's the 30th anniversary of rising sun But before we get into that, Anton, a little bit of admin. We sort of occasionally mention sports on this podcast. We now have our World Series matchup confirmed. The American League champion Texas Rangers will be facing the National League champion Arizona Diamondbacks. By the time you hear this recording, the series will be over, but we wanted to mention it anyway.
1: Okay. Well, everyone knows how good I am with bold predictions from the past. Uh, Pat, do you have any predictions for the series?
0: Rangers, I guess, in six.
1: I got that. I I'll also take that Rangers and six. I love Bruce Bochi. all time oh, giant great. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's your boy. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's that's that that's our guy. Uh, we actually just got our new uh, new skipper uh, the other day signed with a team. Uh, former catcher Bob Melvin. So we'll see how that goes. But hey, Bruce Boach is in the show, and I really don't like the diamondback So let's see how it goes.
0: I don't either. I know Tyler doesn't. Sorry about your Phillies, Tyler. They choked that away.
1: We're still in mourning over here. We won't talk about it.
0: Hmm, that's okay. Also, I wanted to give a shout out to Sir Michael Kane, who recently retired from acting. He was a lifelong friend of Sean Connery's. And uh, I like Michael. I think we all like Michael Kane.
1: Yeah. I mean, legendary. So definitely shouts out and respect to Sir Michael Kane.
2: I would have totally had a drink with Michael Kane and Sean Connery.
0: Man, wouldn't that have been great? Just imagine hanging out with those two. I feel like if you didn't know Connery, he'd be a tough hang, but he'd be really cool once you got to know him.
1: I feel like he would be pretty like he would just be fun just like I I think he he could be like brave like just brave and like also like strongly opinionated about everything (laughs) definitely
2: I'd have to imagine someone like him doesn't have a whole lot of patrons
1: no our League of
0: Extraordinary Gentlemen episode last week I dug up the real reason why he retired from acting It, it was not because of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen specifically it was because of something else it's really funny but uh I'll keep you in suspense for now (laughs) <laughs> and uh, as always, if uh, to our listeners, if you like what you hear and you haven't already made it official, please give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. We surely do appreciate it. And with that being said, Anton, let's, let's dig in. Yeah, let's do it. Rising Sun, 30th anniversary, when a prostitute is found dead in a Los Angeles skyscraper occupied by a large Japanese corporation, detectives John Connor and Webb Smith are called in to investigate. Although Connor has previous experience working in Japan, cultural differences make their progress difficult until a security get disc showing the murder turns up. Close scrutiny proves the disc has been doctored and the detectives realize they are dealing with a cover-up as well. Rising Sun was released on July 30, 1993 by 20th Century Fox. It was directed by Philip Kaufman. The screenplay was written by Michael Crichton, Michael Bax, and Philip Kaufman, based on the novel by Michael Crichton. And the film stars Sean Connery, Wesley Snipes, Harvey Keitel, Kari Hiroyuka Tagawa, Tia Carrera, Kevin Anderson, Stan Ege, Mako, and Ray Wise. A budget of $35 million, that's the equivalent of $74 million adjusted for inflation, and a box office return of $107 million, that is $226 million adjusted for inflation. So normally I start with asking our guest, Why they chose to appear on this episode, and I will, but I would like to intro this because this is one of my all time favorite guilty pleasure movies. And because it was the anniversary, I thought it would be just a great opportunity to cover it. This is the second 1993 adaptation of a best selling novel written by a popular author we're covering on this podcast. Last season, we covered The Pelican Brief by John Grisham. And this is also the second and far less famous of the two Michael Crichton adaptations from 1993, the other, of course, being. Jurassic Park, one of the biggest movies of all time. I love a good murder mystery, and I think this movie's quite flawed, but I really do love this film. I have long, fond memories of watching this pretty much over my whole life. Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes are two of my all-time favorite actors, and it's such a delight to see them at the top of their game. So with that being said, Tyler, why did you want to appear on this episode?
2: So I am a, a lifelong Crichton fan. I've read Jurassic Park when I was in sixth grade, uh, and then wanted to continue reading Michael Crichton books. I think this is probably the second or third one I read. I read this in probably seventh grade, somewhere along there. But like reading what I would consider very adult material with uh, Yakuza, Prostitutes, Murder, the whole nine, it was just such a weird book for me to read. Um, But I I really enjoyed it. I did not know there was a movie. 1993, I was four. So Probably wouldn't have watched this that early, uh, but I probably was in high school, probably in sophomore or junior year of high school when I found out there was a movie. Knew I had read this book in the past and wanted to obviously watch it. Thinking back on it now, the casting of Connery makes perfect sense. I almost feel like I saw Connery in my head as I was reading this book. I don't think that I would have ever seen Wesley Snipes as the other character here, but it makes sense after seeing the movie. But the movie is so crazy and over the top and I don't want to say it's campy but it is a very much a 90s movie Uh, but it's just it's hard to not enjoy it it's just again like the plot moves so quickly it's like ABC and you're done there's no fluff there's no weird stuff the simple mystery of a a prostitute was murdered who did the murder uh, with the layered on Japanese weirdness and complexity uh, I thought was cool this was also like an odd introduction to Japanese culture for me uh, as a child. You know, reading Jurassic Park and knowing the research and the background that Crichton put into building that book. And then him using that same kind of investigative ambition to pull all this Japanese culture stuff. Now, I don't know how real this is with Japanese culture, but for him to dive into that and put all this into a book it was eye opening for me as a kid. And, and seeing it in the movie, I think, was even cooler. Um, but again, it is just a a pretty out there movie with a lot of crazy set pieces, with a bunch of weird karate fights that don't make much sense. There's a samurai sword in there at one point. It there just is. it hit, hits all the high notes with explosions, cars, fun stuff for me. Uh, yeah. so yeah,
0: it's uh, it's basically a Sherlock Holmes mystery, right? When it, when you really think about it, I always found the premise unique. To me, it's just it's it's a it's more than a, just a compelling murder mystery because I've never really seen a murder mystery quite like this with the with the setting. It's just pure pulp, and I always really enjoyed it. And it's funny you say that you pictured Sean Connery. Um, Crichton, of course, wrote the role of John Conner specifically for Connery, so it, you know it makes a ton of sense. I had the opposite experience of you, where I saw the movie first, probably much younger than I should have. I was probably six or seven when I saw this on HBO. I obviously didn't understand a lot of it. I read the book you know, much later after I really got into Crichton. Being a James Bond fan and a Connery fan, this is, of course, probably one of the first Crichton books that I read. Just like with the Pelican Brief, Anton, um, there's probably no other podcast celebrating the anniversary of this, but we are here to carry the torch for Rising Sun. Anton, what are your memories of this?
1: Well, I do remember at a young age, I think it was around middle school, seeing the film, and I was already pretty obsessed with Japanese culture, and everyone knows I'm into anime. But I'll tell you right now, it is such a treat to, to see a film where Sean Connery is obsessed with Japanese culture and, can, and is speaking Japanese. I think I will always hold that as a treasure in my heart. For me, it's enough of a reason to want to talk about this film. All right, then. Let's
0: get right into the production history. So the novel was published in 1992, and it immediately received mixed reviews for its controversial subject matter, particularly its social commentary regarding U.S.-Japanese relations. This was written during a time when some people were concerned about the economic threat that Japan posed to the United States. There were real concerns about Japanese corporations buying up tons of American real estate, investing in American companies, et cetera, et cetera. Crichton said that he intended his novel to be a wake-up call to the U.S. industry and that he is actually more critical of the United States than Japan in the novel, which is, I suppose there's some fairness to that statement. These concerns, of course, proved to be unfounded as the Japanese economy suffered a major recession in the early 1990s. So basically, by the time the novel was published, it was dated. The anti-Japanese sentiment was already fading. So therefore, the novel was dated the film was dated, despite that the novel was still a bestseller. And at the same time, Jurassic Park, the film, was well into production. It was, it was receiving a lot of hype already. So eager to get on board the Crichton train, 20th Century Fox paid Crichton $1 million for the filming rights to his novel, and they also hired him to write the screenplay alongside a, a gentleman named Michael Bax. After Philip Kaufman came on board as director... He began his own work on the screenplay, while at the same time he asked Crichton for no less than five separate rewrites. Now this greatly annoyed Crichton, who actually would end up um, not being on speaking terms with the filmmaker. A bit of trivia on Philip Kaufman. He's probably a name that most people won't recognize these days, but during this time he was uh, a fairly big name in Hollywood. Probably his biggest claim to fame might be actually his most unknown he has a story credit on Raiders of the Lost Ark. He actually came up with the idea to use the Ark of the Covenant. So he's co-credited with George Lucas as a character creator on all of the subsequent Indiana Jones movies. Pretty interesting. He's also known for directing uh, The Right Stuff. is probably his best-known film. And then the 1978 remake, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But back to Rising Sun, at one point... David Mamet worked on a draft. He didn't get a credit. Now, Crichton, who had been good friends with Sean Connery for years already, I mentioned this previously, he had written the character of John Connery specifically for Connery. So pretty cool. He sent an advance copy to Connery before the book was even published, and Connery immediately said that he wanted to play the part. Connery also served as executive producer here. This would become a standard for him for the remainder of his career.
1: We've mentioned his name and we're excited to say Wesley Snipes later revealed that Sean Connery handpicked him to be his co-star for the film. So Snipes' career was really on the upswing. And in the two years prior to this, he starred in Jungle Fever, New Jack City, White Men Can't Jump, and Passenger 57. 1993, he's in this film and Demolition Man. So one of the rising stars. And the decision to cast Snipes as Lieutenant Webb Smith did not sit well with Crichton. Smith is white in the novel, and Crichton felt that changing the character's race to African-American was detrimental to the story. Crichton says, quote, in a movie about U.S.-Japan relations, if you cast someone who's black, you introduce another aspect because of tension between blacks and Japanese, end quote. I don't necessarily agree with Crichton there. Wondering if, uh, you know, Pat, I- I'm sure you don't as, as well.
0: No, I, I don't. Now, Tyler, I know what you meant earlier when you said if you read the book first, you probably don't picture Wesley Snipes in the role of Smith, but I think it's a great casting decision. I think he's great in this role. I don't feel that it's detrimental to whatever Crichton is talking about at all.
2: I hate to say it, but even in that, that quote from Crichton, you can kind of get a feel. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. The tension interesting. Between, between blacks and Japanese not... African Americans and Japanese. So I hate to say that there's some race issue that played in there for Crichton, but it seems like that's what the case was. But at the same time, I don't think it fundamentally changes the character by having his skin be black or or white. I think it's still the same character. He's still facing the same issues outside of this immediate situation in, in the movie that he is in the book. So I don't... Yeah. I don't see it being any detriment to the movie that Wesley Snipes plays the character of Smith.
1: Right, and if you want to th- even think of uh, Snipes' character as the lens from an American point of view, I think he still sits there very well and be in sitting as like the American presence with the tension-filled, you know, Japanese environment. <laughs> but
2: if anything, it, it stokes the animosity between Sean Connery's character, John Connor, and Wesley Snipes' character because of the inherent. You know, like white guy, black guy, the master and subordinate thing that they have going on throughout the right, movie. Right, um, It plays into that a little bit more, and it, it adds a little more of a, a hit to it that you don't get in the
1: book. So back to the production. Crichton and the other writer, Michael uh, Bakes, ended up quitting the project over these story and character disagreements. Kaufman ended up completely taking over the screenwriting process, and even tried to get sole credit for himself but the Writers Guild decided that his contributions were not enough to deny Crichton and Bakes credit. In an interview given to the LA Times, Coffin says he made the movie not because of its political message, but because it offered him an opportunity to make an old-school murder mystery that was also, in the director's words, quote, This fable, this adventure where the hero gets the call and along the way meets the wizard, who guides him to the Dark Tower through strange customs and unfamiliar, even hostile territory, end quote. As Kaufman was known for making long films, Fox made him contractually obligated to deliver a two-hour length film, and Rising Sun was filmed entirely on location in Los Angeles from June to October in 1992. Eddie Sakamura's red sports car is a Vector uh, W8, an American-made supercar with a top speed of 242 miles per hour. Tyler, what can you tell us about the rarity of this car?
2: This car is kind of insane. It's an all-American car, uh, which To me, it makes it seem even more unlikely that a Japanese person would be driving it. It's it's an American crate engine and an American car. At the time in 1992, they only made these for three years and they only made a handful of them. It was a $450,000 car, which is with inflation somewhere a little over a million dollars today that someone would have paid for that car. They also catch on fire. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a, (laughs) we had talked about this before. Uh, But John McEnroe got one, and I don't know if it was pre-production, but it was like serial number 001, basically. Uh, And as he was just driving it one day, like the carpet in the back of the car caught on fire. Uh, And then he went to them and was like, hey, I'd like to return this car. And they're basically like, no. And that's not the only one that caught on fire. They consistently caught on fire from exhausts. Uh, from the way it sat in the back of the car. But they only made, I think, less than 200 of these total. They didn't really exist back then, and the market for them is almost non-existent now. Oddly enough, they're still selling for about a million dollars. So they haven't increased in price crazily, but I can't imagine taking what was basically a kit car and going 242 miles an hour in it with a bunch of dudes in a garage, basically putting them together by hand. Definitely a cool, cool car. And when you watch this movie, it's like the first thing you see. is like this kind of crazy car when they get out of the karaoke lounge. And it's like, what is this dude driving? And they, I don't know if it's on purpose, but they kind of, they put the name of the car pretty clear on the side of the car. So when they zoom in as yes. uh, the girl gets in the car, you can <laughs> see the name of the car pretty clearly and you see W8 pretty clearly. Yeah, it's just a crazy car to put in this movie. And I, it's, I think one of the, the sneaky features, best features of this movie is that that car exists and then it does blow up later on.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like to think uh, usually there's going to be like, right product placement in cars as part of the sponsorship and you know adding to the the funding of a film do we think that that's what happened here with vector and if so i wonder how they feel about having another instance where the car caught on fire i
2: have to think that vector did not know that this car was going to be in the movie but for them to crash it a car that was worth four hundred fifty thousand dollars. i hope they really didn't crash it i hope it's staged
1: yeah fair enough fair enough (laughs) Uh, it was just some hollywood magic we'll we'll leave it at that no one was harmed so Fox was uh, you know, reportedly very unhappy with how Kaufman handled the production. His original cut was much longer, but Fox, holding him to the two-hour runtime, forced him to trim several scenes. None of these have ever been made public, so they're still in the, in the vault. This film permanently crippled Kaufman's career. He would not make another film for seven years. Um, but the film did perform well at the box office, but ended up, uh, as uh, we know today, at a 33% Rotten Tomato score i enjoy this film quite quite so pat i know you're quite a fan as well and then tyler you know you've shared your fondness for the film but do we think that there's even any like uh, anyone of a younger age or anyone under 30 that knows about this film at all
0: no i had to explain to several people what this film was when they you know i I, because we i've i've teased it numerous times you know previously on the podcast and i've had you know, numerous people ask me, you know, what is Rising Sun? And I had to explain it to them. And it's it's definitely not a classic, but that's why but that's why we're picking it, right? This would have been a movie that people were hyped for in 1993. Michael Crichton was a huge deal back then. This was really the beginning of the era when any novel that he was publishing was getting turned into a movie. And this is the same, this came out like a month after Jurassic Park. Sean Connery was one of the biggest stars in the world what Wesley Snipes was becoming one of the biggest actors in the world at the time so there would have been a lot of hype for this and like you know like you just said Anton it didn't get great reviews it had um there was an you know Asian American lobby that protested this movie so it was controversial at the time and it it's a great selection for this podcast of course but you know when I saw this film as a kid I didn't know any of those things so I just saw it and liked it and I've I've always liked it. Yeah, One and of sh- strange movies, that just
2: kind of disappeared. It, yeah. For a while, it was like an HBO 2 movie. Not premiere HBO, but like the backup <laughs> HBO.
0: It had uh, a run on TNT too for a long time.
2: And I, I don't know if it, maybe it's the subject matter with, you know, prostitutes and Yakuza and nudity all kind of packaged in, but you never, ever see this movie anymore.
1: No, very it's rare. Yeah. Gone. And with that, We've talked about this film. There's a, a bit of respect uh, for my fellow um, podcasters today. Let's discuss it. Why wasn't this film? Wh- wh- why wasn't this film better?
0: I think you have to start with the plot. Now, for those who have not read the novel, this is a very faithful adaptation of it. There are certain things that are changed, which we'll get into. There are. Certain things that are omitted, which is, you know, typical with any adaptation of a novel, right? But Tyler, of all the Crichton novels, this might be the most faithful adaptation. Would you agree? Yeah, if,
2: if you want to, I mean, some of the other adaptations are kind of crazy. I'll, I'll drop the movie Timeline, which is a Paul Walker, not so yeah. classic, um, that has like almost nothing to do with the book it's based on. Right. Uh, like the, the general idea is there, but, but nothing else. Jurassic Park is totally different than the book. Um, this is, you know, beat for beat, almost exactly alike. uh, yeah. that's, you know, going back to the intro, it's kind of crazy that someone else would demand sole screenwriting credit for this when he basically copied and pasted 94% of the book.
0: Right. You know, and the novel's not perfect. Namely, some of the uh, racial stuff that we're we're gonna get into a little bit later. But I have to say, I I reread it to to prepare for this podcast. It is a page turner. It's a great what you would call an airport novel. It's a really interesting murder mystery, though. It's also I mentioned it's like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And as as a film, this was uh you know the buddy cop movie trope was very popular in the early nineties. So this this was certainly capitalizing on that. There were a lot of uh, contemporary things going. In this movie's favor when it came out in 1993, I got to say I'm always thrown by the opening. As many times as I've seen this, the, the karaoke thing fools me every time.
1: What well, was it? Was the dog walking out with a hand in its mouth, or
0: yes, yeah, now, probably. The, the plot that. itself it it unfolds in a pretty unconventional manner. So it begins with Wesley Snipes' character, Webb Smith. He is recollecting the events of the previous four days to others in the form of. A police debriefing. So, most of what we see is told in flashback, but then in the final 15 minutes of the film, the story catches up to the present, allowing Smith and Connor to solve the case, which I haven't really seen in too many films. I think it's, again, one of the more unique things about the storytelling.
1: I would say, like, when thinking about one of the aspects of the film that, like, you know, I I really want to score it very highly. But I think like the plot itself is a bit more complex and like definitely requires a bit more analysis or maybe another rewatch to fully get. I don't know if that's necessarily a negative, but definitely something maybe that for a wider audience was harder to digest. And even then, you have a very unconventional way of telling the story, which again is great, but probably harder for audiences in the early 90s to just really eat popcorn and watch.
2: I think you, you lose some of the, the understanding of the movie that comes in the book because you have more time to digest things as they happen in the book that probably two and a half hour screen time or runtime that this movie originally went probably would have filled in and given more detail to some of those weird things that are somewhat confusing across the movie, especially with some of the characters who pop in and pop out and you know understanding the relationships that people have across some of these characters, like Connery's character's relationship with the guy he's golfing with. Like Some of that stuff doesn't explain as well as it is in the book, and it's not given the
0: the detail and the thrift it is in the book. Right. Anton, you mentioned how it's not necessarily a negative. I could see why some people would think it is, though. This is not a movie that is easily absorbed with just one viewing. The, the plot is pretty dense. It's one of those times where they made every effort to make it as faithful to the novel as possible, and... It is not the easiest plot to digest. I don't really think there are many plot holes in it. Everything is pretty logical. And on subsequent rewatches, a lot of the stuff does hold up. And a lot of the questions that you may ask do get answered. But if you're just going to watch this once, I could see why it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I I do understand the the, the criticism of the complexity of the plot. I think it's fair.
1: I mean, you know, we're going to touch on more of it, but it is fair to say it's a rather complex plot in that there's different, there's a lot of different angles. A lot of reveals, a lot is mysterious. You don't necessarily, there's a lot of great aspects of telling or showing, not necessarily telling, which I think is, is great for a film. But I think maybe why it didn't, it's not as well received because it's, there's it really does require more thorough analysis to digest
0: yeah there's you know like there's the yakuza angle in this film like the the yakuza plays a part in the plot but they're not a huge part of it and then there's like the karetsu thing with the competing cartels some of it's more clear than others like Tanaka, the security guy who gets killed crashing Eddie's uh, vector car. Like, you know, what but, is his role in the conspiracy but, exactly? They, they do answer it. But again,
1: if you watch the movie once, you're like, wait, who was that guy? But, but why, what is Steve Buscemi's character doing? Is he, he's the weasel, right? But He is. But w- what is, what's the point of his character?
0: It's almost like they wanted to include him from the novel. But it makes you wonder, should he, should he even have been in the film? Mm, debatable. You know, Tyler, I, I don't know if this happened in the novel. Maybe you remember. I don't know why Steve Buscemi's character is present during the police debriefing and, like, Ishihara's there. Richmond's there. It's not really clear how they're allowed to be there.
2: I'm assuming that in 1983, Steve Buscemi wasn't uh, as known a quantity as, today, as he is today. Cause
0: oh, he was kinda, an unknown.
2: Yeah, it's kind of distracting to see him in the movie and pop up in that. He's in the movie for like, three minutes. Yeah. Uh, he's in, in the, the first scene in the library where the other guy's on the phone, and then he's in. Uh, the scene where he's following the two of them around and uh, Connery tells him to fuck off or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's distracting. It was kind of jarring to see him in the movie. I'd forgotten actually that he was in the movie uh, until I saw it. Uh, and then you see him pop in and he's he's there for a few minutes. He pops out and just like, was it really necessary to, to show that? Was that the only way that he, they could show that there was some kind of investigation into into Connery or uh, Steph's character, you know, taking that money basically? Uh, I, I don't know. And, and again, that whole subplot is kind of strange to jam in there. Yeah, it
0: is. It is a great bit of acting, though, when um, Wesley Snipes threatens to pimp slap Sean Connery <laughs> up and down the street. I did, I did like that bit. Um, senpai, apple pie, whatever. So we mentioned there's been a you know a, a few. It's a faithful adaptation of the novel, but there's a few changes. the The biggest one is that Philip Kaufman changed the killer's identity from Japanese to white. In the book, the killer is Ishihara, although his name is actually Ishiguro in the book. For whatever reason, they changed that as well
1: weird
0: actually being the killer makes a a whole lot more sense than bob richmond
1: was it pretty and it was very like clear like that he was the killer there was no question about it
0: correct yeah he gets exposed on the video as the killer and then he ends up committing suicide by jumping off um the balcony of um the skyscraper
1: yeah i mean that's a, a bit more of a yeah, clear ending, but we yeah, didn't I mean, get that, it, did we? <laughs>
0: it, it certainly makes more sense because Bob Rich. We'll get to Bob Richmond a little bit later. He's the character uh, played by Kevin Anderson, and I don't know the name of the actor that played his hair, but it deserves its own credit. <laughs> Speaking to this major change in an interview with the L.A. Times, Philip Kaufman explained the change by saying, "Quote: It wasn't in the cards for a Japanese businessman to behave in this manner." End quote, which is a strange thing to say. Also from the same article, Kaufman was softening the political edge of Crichton's novel partly because of external pressure, most of it coming from Japanese Americans who believed the source material was racist and that the film could incite anti-Asian fervor. But Kaufman says the changes he made, along with everything else about the film, emerged solely from his own subjective interpretation of the novel. I have to say, regardless of the reason making Richmond the killer does feel like a little bit of a cop-out. If you watch this movie and you pay attention to the plot, Ishihara is a far more logical choice to be the killer.
1: But, I mean, we talked about this, you know, before the recording, and I actually do think that the way that they ended up writing it in the film, that it's a bit more of an open question, ends up being a bit more, I don't know, provocative, and actually even adds more to the mystique of, I mean, they've already played around with like how the Japanese do business in the film and trying to convey that. Adding that extra element of mystery is kind of a, is kind of a fun way to interpret that ending.
0: It was fun in a way. And I know what you mean. Because as, as Tia Carrera's character, Jingo, points out to Wesley Snipes, there's no physical evidence actually confirming Richmond as the killer. He wisely avoids all the video cameras that are on the um, you know, the floor of, the, of Nakamoto's boardroom. So he theoretically could have done nothing and gotten away with it, but he chose to run like a dumbass, and you know he ends up getting killed for it. Oh, by the way, real quick, how many times did you confuse Nakamoto with Nakatomi from Die Hard? Uh,
1: a ton. Yeah. I mean, that, that wasn't the only one that threw me off. The fact that his name was John Connor was a little bit jarring.
0: Well, you have to understand, Anton, this is, this is before the rise of the machines and before he leads... The, the human resistance. That's this is right. this is all before that, so it actually yeah, makes total Sean. sense.
1: It's in the same timeline. I forgot about that. My bad, guys. Yeah,
0: how could you possibly confuse the two? John
2: Connor thing. It's crazy to me because it literally it just is Sean Connery, just with yeah. like one one last letter. Uh, not super inventive for Michael Crichton, who's usually a pretty imaginative guy.
0: I'm kind of kicking myself now for not doing this research. But how many other times have we seen this example where an author writes a character? specifically for an actor that actually ends up playing them in the movie adaptation, it's got got to be pretty uncommon, right?
2: I can't imagine there are a whole lot of writers who uh, write a book and have the movie rights secured while they're writing the book, so.
0: True. Yeah, Crichton had some pretty serious cachet back then. Do either of you know how he became friends with Connery? I don't know.
1: Let's, Let's give the audience a treat.
0: So it's probably long forgotten now, but Crichton actually directed several films. He directed the original Westworld film, which was an adaptation of his own novel. One of his earlier books is uh, the, uh, the Great Train Robbery. He directed the film adaptation of his own book and Connery starred in that film. I think that came out in 1979. That's how he got to know Connery. So pretty cool.
1: No, that is awesome. It was a very straw, like a, in terms of like characters that um, go down in, in history, especially in like mystery or like pulp like such a strong character and I think like that lends itself to also have, uh Crichton having a very strong vision in his head of our very own Sean Connery in the role indeed
0: back to Rising Sun and Ishihara being the the killer in the novel but he's not the killer here and you know one of the questions that it, I've seen poised towards this film is why isn't Ishihara at least hit with an obstruction charge he gives the investigators the falsified evidence. You could argue he's guilty of conspiracy to commit murder of Cheryl Lynn Austin, the, the call girl that is uh, murdered in the boardroom, right? But right. the answer to this is pretty clear, right? And they kind of say it. At this point, the LAPD considers the case officially closed. Connor and Smith, they're operating entirely on their own and arresting Ishihara would have proved fruitless. So Connor even says it himself, after Richmond dies by getting thrown into wet concrete, everybody wants this case closed.
1: Right. I mean, the real puppet master pulling the strings for the whole case, John Connor, is just cryptically talking about it the whole time, is no one really wants a case solved at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I, I talked about it before, but I saw so many parallels between this film and a very similar Southern California mystery thriller, a bit of a classic, uh, Chinatown. In the way that it deals with conspiracy is also, you know, a masterpiece. But uh, really interesting to have so many layers of depth in this story.
0: Excellent point about Chinatown. Kaufman actually mentioned that film in that um, L.A. Times interview that he gave. Also, funny overlooked bit about this part. I didn't think about this until the last rewatch. So C- Connor and Smith they kind of coerce a United States senator into committing suicide under false pretenses. Boy. It never gets brought up again. Like, feels like it would be a fairly big deal.
1: I sure hope somebody got fired for that blunder.
0: I don't think anybody knows about it now. And then I I have a question for you both about the end. So, the the end of this film is is pretty strange, right? I'd say it's ambiguous at best. So, is is Jingo inviting Webb Smith to go to bed with her? Like, why does it end this way? This, This is not in the novel at all.
2: Don't they have like a conversation about loyalty? And that's like the kind of the I don't know if it's the way it ends, but like the the conversation they have while they're in the car together about loyalty and about all that stuff. I I think it's like him or her closing the door on him making that move, and then the weird hand motion he does at the very end where he's like grabbing for her hair. It all ended very strange.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the way I interpreted it is he even asks her like, "What does he talk? About, what does you know Connor talk about when he says?" leaving the cage open so that the bird can leave and then come back. And I think that that's what it was alluding to. It's like, it may not have been clear that she's been with John Connor the whole time, but even like she's entering his home and she can leave it. And like the, the doors open. So she'll leave again eventually. And he's just observing that. And he's just like, probably like, man, this is all so confusing and effed up. I don't know what just happened this, this past week. Oh, it's definitely confusing.
0: This movie has a lot of
2: weird sayings. That one and then with they before they they fax off the pictures they talk about beating the grass to up the snakes, which I thought was just <laughs> a, such Incredible. an odd saying to just jam into a movie like this.
0: I need to think of ways to use it at work. Like working on a project and I'll just like use that line and just confuse everyone in the meeting. Yeah, I mean I have to say in its defense Although it's dense and in some parts confusing, the plot does come mm. together. And again, I do think the premise is unique. The culture clash, the corporate takeover, the two reluctant partners, uh, you know, they get they get put together to try to solve something that they're not expected to solve. That's what makes the movie rewatchable for me, right? Like the, the political Japan-U.S. relation backdrop, like that's all fun and whatever, but it's that's a window dressing thing for me. I think the plot mostly holds up. I have a lot of notes justifying why the plot holds up, and I was going to read them, and I'm, I'm just not going to now. It's, it's too much, and I think it would really bore the listeners.
1: But, I mean, maybe that speaks a little bit to the complexity of this thing and just kind of more the reason why it wasn't as easy for folks to just easily enjoy the film is because it needs a lot of <laughs> justification and rewatches to just
0: absorb. Oh, no, I, I agree with you. Like, like I, I do think the criticism about the, the dense plot is clear. Uh, I'll just say this. It's, if you see this movie as a result of this podcast and you're coming away confused, let me just give you a little preview. John Connor lays it all out pretty clearly at the end. The entire thing hinges on the two competing zaibatsus, like the Japanese cartels, both of whom want to purchase this company, Microcon. The film's tagline is equally clear. Business is war. Nakamoto was one cartel, and then Eddie's father represented the other cartel. Both of them understood that whoever had control over Senator Morton would have control over the deal to get congressional approval. That's it. Like That's basically all you need to
1: know. Right. But already, like that's just so much, and that's not easily, I guess, <laughs> no, translated. It's not. it's not easily translated at all.
2: Again, the, the Japanese thing layers, layers on somatic complexity to this, when they, instead of saying conglomerate or whatever corporation or whatever they they use the japanese terms which are somewhat confusing because they they don't like it it doesn't register you're not thinking of these things Um, right and a lot of the the way they address people and all that stuff it it just layers on complexity that they were to say this conglomerate wants to take over this company and their rival conglomerate wants to take over the company too and they're lobbying for it i don't know if that loses some of the intrigue of the movie but it definitely makes it more linear and easier to understand definitely uh, with, with adding that in you're you get yeah. lost sometimes
1: and i was gonna say there's also just like a few terms that get thrown in but then isn't really readdressed like the Kyretsus, they talk about the zaibatsus a bit but then there's this concept right of like the a set of companies with with relationships so almost like uh, large like the cartel the, the, the bigger yeah the larger cartel yeah the, the, the kairetsu. right um right. but uh again it, it's just one of those things where it's it's a lot to track
0: i have two questions about the plot i think they're the only two plot holes and i've really overanalyzed this probably in an unhealthy way so the number one is so in the very beginning of the film after we see um eddie and cheryl and his gang and they're leaving the uh, karaoke bar right It cuts to the Nakatomi, sorry, Nakamoto boardroom (laughs) where they're apparently um, negotiating with the two microcon executives for whatever reason at 6.38 a.m., right? And so we see Senator Morton on TV talking about how he's not going to approve the deal, right? And the two microcon executives like high five each other. It's like if they don't want to sell the company, why are they there? That's never really made clear. Like, you either want to sell your company or you don't. I
2: think they make it clear at other points in the movie that they don't have a choice, uh, that they are going to be bought no matter what, and it's just a matter of what company is going to do it. Uh, now, these two companies just happen to be competing, but they go and talk to the other guy who doctors the video initially, and they're in that weird garden with the weird robot walking on two Oh, legs. on the set
0: of uh, Star Trek?
2: Yeah, and they're, they're having that conversation <sighs> with him, and he basically says, like, yeah, I'm the CEO and name only. I have no control over what actually happens here. Um, and it seems to be it's a similar situation where these people don't have the option to remain in control of their own company. They are going to be bought, uh, and that is the way it is.
0: But they don't have to sell it. I don't think they have a choice. I
1: and don't think, think they have. Yeah, that, that I think was the a, point.
0: A, I, it's a fiduciary
2: yeah. thing where I guess, your shareholders, no. you have a, a fiduciary responsibility to extract the most value from your company, ah, uh, I guess. that is just what it is. My and
0: other this, question is this. So Eddie takes the original disc, right? That's like his power play, right? That's what makes him the wild card, right? He, right. he takes the, the original the disc. disc before they can doctor it, right? If he takes the original disc, how does Ishihara get the disc copied and doctored?
2: I don't think there's the answer to that one. They have right? those guys reconstructing all that stuff.
0: But they, they would you know, need the original disc to do it, right? And Eddie had it.
2: Would they, though? Because they say the, the clock stops in the recording. So it, it's, it's like basically a picture they have taken and doctored after the fact. Well, couldn't they have just put the physical body in there? They show it, uh, like in the demo, when they swap Connery and uh, Wesley Snipes' heads uh, at a different point in the movie. But it seems like that they don't need it; they just need to be able to substitute someone's body in there. Uh, It doesn't actually matter if it's. But the original disc
0: is what recorded the murder, or at least what they thought to be the murder.
2: They did the digital murder though.
0: Oh, that
2: that was
1: all fake too. Yeah, that's the whole.
2: the whole shtick is that they could do this all digitally and they could make it look pretty authentic.
1: But from what even, but even in that scene though, they were saying, "Oh, look, these are the things that they took out of the original footage." So right. they would have still had to have had the original footage at some point. Uh,
2: there's got to be a copy somewhere then.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, number two reason why this wasn't better: the acting. I actually think quite highly of the acting. This is one of my favorite Sean Connery performances. He injects a lot of mystique into his performance, and they wisely don't reveal too much about his past. They kind of leave you guessing. They reveal a few things. He used to live in Japan. Eddie's father saved his life. He was some kind of consultant. He met Jingo there, but you don't really know a ton about him. You're never really sure what John Conner's deal is or what game he's playing at, but you choose to trust him because he's Sean Connery.
1: It was such a masterful performance and not so much that he ever really had to, you know, really be bombastic. But because he's just Sean Connery, such a master at the subtle touch to really just reveal more about the character.
0: Yeah. His character has like this foresight where he's just like, oh, I was wondering when that would happen. Oh, you were called twice. Of course, Eddie's still alive of. Well, why don't you know that he has like this foresight that would be it would be comical. With any other person playing it, but Connery has the charisma to pull it off. He doesn't dial it up too much. He does in a couple scenes where it's great, but mm-hmm. he's taking the material like just serious enough. Like Connery seems well aware that he's basically in an airport novel and he's doing a lot of acting with his eyes. I really like that scene in the car after Wesley Snipes picks him up from his house. And they're riding to the, you know, the, the Nakamoto Tower. And, and Smith makes that comment about, like, oh, senpai, like, does that mean masa? And Connery gives him this side eye. It's really good. And they give him a lot of humor to do. He's got some incredible lines to deliver. Just the right amount of cheese. Mm-hmm. Let's go through them. The Japanese have a saying, fix the problem, not the blame. Never take what the enemy offers you. Do you know what's true? When something sounds too good to be true, then it's not true. Some of my favorites. We may come from a fragmented MTV <laughs> rap video culture, but they do not. And then What's Tyler, wrong? you mentioned, we're beating the grass to rattle the snakes. They do some sun zoo in there. If, if you sit by the river long enough, you will see the body of your enemy floating by. And what my the all-time hell? favorite. Here we go. Keep your hands at your sides. The Japanese find big arm movements threatening. <laughs> Yeah, this so, r- really reminded me of Jurassic Park. <laughs> their, their visions based on movement. It's so,
1: it's so like like how could you not see that trailer in like the '90s and be like, "What is this racist movie gonna be?" But then like you watch and you're like, "This is amazing." <laughs> but also, I can confirm it's true. I, I was making a lot of um large hand movements at the Japanese grocery store and freaking everyone out. Yeah, how they react? Just coward in fear. <laughs> i was just talking about my day
0: tyler anything to uh any any thoughts on connery's performance
2: it's just so strange it really is like the juxtaposition of him with that accent and then pretending to be american but they do address that he's from uh, westchester like the scotland yard comment yeah but then for them for him to reflect on it you know that the we may come from an, a fragmented mtv rap video culture it's such an odd thing for him to say as a guy who grew up in like the the 1940s in scotland (laughs) for him to say that uh it just seems out of character uh but everything else he says the way he says it with that kind of wry smile the whole time he just sells it for me it's so great
0: and and my favorite part of the whole film is when they show up to the murder scene and snipes is handling it and then ishi ishihara like flusters him and then just like he predicted, Snipes gets pissed off, and then Connery steps in, and he's speaking to Ishihara, and then he starts yelling at him in Japanese, and he ends it, and don't you fuck with me! Uh.
1: Look, I said it you know, much earlier on, and I really do mean it. Like, Sean Connery speaking Japanese, being obsessed with Japanese culture. He was the embod- and I, I told you about this you know, term, Pat. He was the embodiment of a weeb in 1993. Tyler, are you familiar with the term? I'm not so uh you know if you if you look it up online it's a term of endearment in the anime community for non-japanese fans who are obsessed with japanese culture and usually like in the anime community and it's just this concept of just like you go into sean connery like in john conner's apartment and he just has everything japanese you got the he knows everything about the culture um you, you have the sliding fans he probably has a kimono in there i could almost imagine sean connery just uh telling wesley snipes at the end of the evening y- you need to take me home i need to watch death note <laughs> i need to watch my anime tonight so make sure i don't get home too late you know th- th- things like that I-, I just find it amazing
0: he somehow manages to pull it all off and even some of the more ridiculous things that he's asked to do when that the security guard tells him like you should know i'm a black belt and he's like but of course you are dear which is a great james bond callback mm-hmm. they say that well, you wait. have to, if you have to resort to violence then you've already lost what do you think jeff
2: can we just talk about him throat punching that guy (laughs) just out of nowhere?
0: That's so great. That is uh, Anton. That is directly lifted from the novel too. Like that. It's great.
1: Fantastic.
0: Yeah. He, he, he somehow pulls it off. Like he has the charisma to do it. We haven't talked about Wesley Snipes yet. I think who equally matches him. This is one of my favorite Wesley Snipes performances. I love how he plays it. It's not the rookie stereotype. He's not quite the fish out of water. You never once get the impression that he's in over his head. Like he you always get that he's like a pretty seasoned professional at this point. He's smart, sarcastic, he's witty. He doesn't seem to like Connor at first, but they develop into having like a, a, a genuine friendship. It's really a nice arc. And this movie really makes me miss Wesley Snipes. Like he really was one of my all-time favorite actors.
1: Prime Wesley Snipes was amazing and this was before he started getting a bit of an ego, right? Yeah.
0: They were making this before White Men Can't Jump came out. So it's like he when he was filming this movie with Connery, he was still pretty relatively unknown. He would have been a face that people recognize, but he wasn't Wesley Snipes the star yet. That's a Vector W8 that just drove by. I, uh, if you heard that car.
1: And, and we, it won't pick it up, but it just caught on fire. Yep. <laughs> I would
2: just say it's kind of incredible how much younger Wesley Snipes looks in White Men Can't Jump than he looks in this. And I don't know if it's. Stand next to Sean Connery instead of, uh... Harrelson? Yeah, Woody Harrelson, but he does look significantly older in this,
0: and the thing they're filming at the same time is kind of crazy. I don't think the baggy suit helps, because him and Connery have some real baggy suits on in this film. Very 1993.
1: I think, it, is it time to bring the baggy suits back, gentlemen? <laughs> it's probably better than,
0: like, the skin-tight trend that was uh, going on in the early 2010s.
1: Or you you know what the current trend is, right? With like the no socks with the shoes and then the ankles, like the the, the pant leg cut is just really high. Yeah, not a fan. Yeah, that's, that's a weird one. I'd rather take the baggy suit look. Yeah,
0: I agree. I, I would else wear a Connery 90- suit in this film. It would probably fit everything me else, right.
2: Everything else from the 90s is back in vogue now, so it's only a matter of time until baggy suits come
1: back. Well, it's such it. an iconic. It's and it's an iconic enough look that it's the it's the Connery look that they include in the Jeopardy skit.
0: It really is. This is pretty much what Saturday Night Live Connery looked like. Some of my all time favorite things are those Connery Celebrity
2: Jeopardy episodes. Uh, I think it's probably more vivid than any Sean Connery movie for me, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: I think uh, both characters are really well written in, in this film. Their chemistry is the best thing about the film, in my opinion. They're, they're really great together. They play off each other really well. I, I liked how they kept as many elements from the book as they could. You know, Smith's character, you know, it's revealed that when he was partners with Harvey Keitel, who we haven't even gotten to yet, he took the dirty money. But the way he sells it, you don't really think any less of him. I could have watched a whole series of films with these two guys just solving crimes. It would have been great. And then the supporting cast, I think, in this film is great, too. Harvey Keitel, you know, veteran actor. They give him some pretty rough lines to deliver here, but he does a good job of portraying a um, overly xenophobic detective.
1: A little over the top, you'd say?
0: Yeah, you know, he's got that casual daytime racism that's um, so one-dimensional, it's almost cartoonish.
1: Was it really still a time in the 90s, though, that uh, sushi wasn't as widely just. I I don't know, because you feel eaten? like in a
0: city like L.A., it would have been in vogue, right? Like, Right. I would think. Yeah. I like when they're about to arrest uh, Eddie Sakamura, who is, um, let's just say, he's hanging out with two lady friends. <laughs> let's just say that. And um, Harvey Keitel makes the comment that he's plundering our natural resources.
1: <laughs> so good
0: yeah oh man and then this is like I, I just forgot about this part the the scene where connor is ha- is hiding in the back of harvey Keitel's car like michael myers what the mm-hmm. heck was that it was hilarious his partner looks dead and then <laughs> connor gives him this like weird vulcan neck pinch thing that just immediately renders him unconscious
2: i was under the assumption that his partner was dead Is that not the case? I don't
0: know. Like he's, he's another, like he was a police officer. Like why, why would Connor have killed him?
2: I don't think it was Connery that killed him. I think it was one of the other Japanese guys.
0: Why would they kill him though? Why not? They don't kill Harvey Keitel, Tom Graham. That's his name.
2: not, Not for not trying.
0: I don't know. And then maybe my favorite character actor in the film, Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa. He's one of the all time great character actors. He's never given a bad performance. Everything I see him in, I like, and this is no exception. Eddie Sakamura is a really fun character. You can tell he's having a ton of fun playing him. I like all the little bits. I like the past history that he has with Connor. He gets some great lines too. He's like, oh yeah, Cheryl, she likes it rough. More, more,
1: squeeze harder. Yeah, he's um, incredible. And this was a time where you had a a lot of great hits, not necessarily like the best movies, but Cult classics like uh, Mortal Kombat. Yeah.
0: Shang Tsung at your service. Your soul is mine. Great. He's in a James Bond movie, too. Another connection. It's in License to Kill. I really like the actor who plays Ishihara. His name's Stan, Stan Egi. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I haven't really seen him in anything else, but he's really, great in this film.
1: Really good call out. I, I totally agree. Um, Stood out for a great performance, but haven't. I personally haven't seen him in in anything else
2: it's kind of notable because when you go and like so when i pull this up i I watched it on my plex and it pulls imdb the picture of him on imdb is literally the picture of him from the premiere of this movie and it's like no other picture of him has ever existed Uh, it's just him with the mustache from this movie
0: it's nice to see mako in this another like veteran character actor legend yeah he's probably best known to like modern audiences he was the original voice of general hero in uh, in avatar the last airbender the animated series
1: that's him and not to forget of course also the original voice actor for aku in samurai jack
0: ah that's right
1: did you know anton he is
0: an academy award nominated actor i did not know that so way back in 1966 he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in The Sand Pebbles, which is a film directed by Robert Wise, who directed Star Trek The Motion Picture.
1: That's a fantastic. And mm-hmm. Deep I think, uh, but did you know that uh, he was also nominated for a Tony Award?
0: No, my Tony knowledge is lacking.
1: Well, he was nominated for a Sondheim musical in uh, 1976, Best Actor. So actually, like, pretty pretty great, you know, to see, uh, to see, uh, Someone with his acting chops get nominated, and that was for Pacific Overtures in 1976.
0: Mm, Very talented guy. Rest in peace.
1: Yes, rest in peace.
0: I think the only real weak link here is the guy Kevin Anderson, who plays Bob Richmond. His acting is... It's fine. Everyone else gives a pretty good performance. He's the only one where you're, you're just kind of left a little disappointed. They could have gotten someone better, I think.
1: Well, I mean, he, I would have loved to have seen Ted from Scrubs be the killer. <laughs> or imagine if it was like young Keanu Reeves.
2: I think he plays like an all right, coked out early 90s guy. That's kind of the vibe with the slick back, doing drugs, running around nonsense guy. Yeah, he's,
1: he's, he's okay. I mean, he's already shown to be obnoxious enough with the scene with what he, he confuses Wesley Snipes with the valet. Oh, that was great! That was so
0: funny. So He's like, what? You already... "What does he say? Wrong century."
1: <laughs> yeah, so so you already don't care enough about his character.
0: I like it, the scene when they're in the um, they're in the Japanese restaurant, and he interrupts Mako and Connery talking. He's like, "So I just, I just, thought microcon would, you know, just be just like the doctor ordered," and they just stare at him. He's like, "Oh, sorry." Such <laughs> a loser. Yeah, nobody cares when he dies. He gets thrown in the concrete, and Connery and Snipes are like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> the other great character actor in here, Ray Wise, who plays Senator Morton. He's wonderful at playing a sleazy yacht club yuppie airhead senator. He's awesome. He's Ugh. so great in the role. I love the part when he's meeting with Connery and
1: Snipes, and he gives them his campaign buttons. And he's like, "One for you, and <laughs> one for you." Shakes their hand. They don't bother getting up to shake his hand. <laughs> just no. like we don't want this.
0: If you freeze frame it too. The, the, the side eye that Connery's giving him is priceless. And then Tia Carrera, where do we stand?
1: This was peak Tia Carrera. Yeah.
2: Was it, though? You sure it wasn't her in
1: that I mean, red jumpsuit in Wayne's World? I mean, in terms of, like, things were going very well for her in her career. She was getting booked a ton. She was. And
0: then she disappeared. Not long after this. I'm not really sure what happened to her career. But, you know, let's just say, uh, you know, easy on the eyes. And then the the other um, beautiful woman in this film, Cheryl Lynn Austin, you know, the unfortunate murder victim, she was played by a German supermodel, Tatiana Patitz, but her voice is dubbed by what I can only describe as one of the most stereotypical, like, foghorn, leghorn, southern voices I've ever heard. Oh, Eddie, what ails you? She seems like (laughs) the type of woman who would say, I do declare...
1: Yeah, it was actually really interesting going into the research for the different, you know, for the different actors and seeing. She was actually very influential in the supermodel scene. So to yeah, like she spe- was. So to see her in the role was actually like you know pretty cool.
0: I knew I recognized her from something. It mu- it was it must have been from some like modeling advert in the nineties because I I can't think of another movie she's in. You know, she I mean, doesn't have a lot of lines here, right? Like she doesn't have a lot to do.
1: Not a ton, but like even when you s- sits around she was like, strangled, <laughs> right? Hey. <laughs> she did. She did great. She she really acted well. Look, we need you to
0: play a corpse. How good are you at acting dead? She oh, pretty
1: good. Stares blankly.
0: <laughs> I think I can pull it off. Oh, Eddie, they're like you're we'll just you're that. just the worst. You can't expect me to get in this red sports car.
1: <laughs> well, I say, well, I
0: say. He's like, don't ever do that again. And then here's a bit of trivia for all you Seinfeld fans out there. To the best of my knowledge, this film contains the highest number of Seinfeld actor crossovers of any film. It's possibly five, and I think both of you guys know your Seinfeld pretty well, right? I do. Yeah. So the two Microcon executives, Peter Crombie, is the one guy with glasses. He's Crazy Joe Davola, the clown. Hmm. Sam Lloyd is a guy who meets Elaine on the subway and becomes obsessed with her.
1: Also, of course, uh, as mentioned before, the very famous Ted Buckland from Scrubs.
0: Right. The big one here, Daniel Von Bargen. He plays the police captain who leads the um, debriefing of Wesley Snipes' character. He is best known for playing George Costanza's boss Kruger in the Festivus episode.
1: Oh, his dad heard enough about him.
0: Yes. <sighs> My son says your company sucks. <laughs> um, he's also in Super Troopers. He's like the local police chief. Pretty funny. He he Grady. also
1: plays the he also plays the commandant on uh, Malcolm in the Middle.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff. And then Amy Hill, she is the forensics expert who examined Cheryl Lynn's body at the crime scene. She is the nail salon owner who had an affair with Frank Costanza when he was yeah, stationed she- in Korea.
1: Amy Hill's been in a ton. Oh yeah, um, it was really cool to see see her in a very early role. Um, a lot of folks may not remember the series All American Girl with Margaret Cho, but that was just a fun little callback to the '90s.
0: So those are the four confirmed. The only one that I can't confirm, to the, what I suspect is the voice that ends up dubbing Cheryl Lynn, right? Because obviously she, it's not a German accent; she was dubbed. I think it's the same actress who plays Marlene that woman that Jerry becomes obsessed with who doesn't want to date him because she doesn't like his routine.
1: Dude, it was the 90s. I think like, that was hers. I can't confirm it's it, It's a very... There's a very high chance. I, I did want to, you know, mention something before we move on to the next reason. We just named, like, a few actors, and there's just too many parallels that, like, I can't, like, skip this. Like, we named, you know, Tia Carrera, Carrie Hiroyukotagawa... And just even the premise of the film itself, uh, where there's a little bit of, you know, anti, you know, some some light anti-Japanese sentiment and some obsession with the Japanese culture. There was another film that was released uh, in 91 uh, with, with a bit of a buddy cop feel. I don't know, have either of you seen A Showdown in Little Tokyo? I have not. I have not either. So, so I, I remember watching this film because I thought it was going i i saw it very like recently i i learned about this film pretty recently like in the last couple years and i saw it because i thought it would be in connection to the um big trouble in little china and it absolutely is not showdown little tokyo is bonkers so it stars dolph Lundgren and brandon lee dolph Lundgren is an american cop who was raised in japan and brandon lee is an american of partial japanese descent and by the way, they're both assigned to the special Japanese task force in LA because the yakuza are so much of a problem in Little Tokyo. And the film is all about how to navigate Japanese culture in Little Tokyo. Starring, of course, the main villain was a uh, Kari Hirayuki Tagawa and Tia Carrera. So, if you know either of you or like our listeners want to visit this film, uh, just a fun little parallel, and just also like kind of the question, it kind of begs the question of just like what kind of racial stuff was going on um, with the Japanese in the early 90s? I need and to maybe, see this. And maybe there's a bit, that's a good bit of a segue, kind of the next reason this film wasn't better.
0: The racial stuff and the production overall. There's some pretty strange racial stuff in, in this film. <laughs> um, the strangest, of course, you know, we, we touched on the Japanese stuff, which is part of the plot, but the most outrageous scene in this film is Wesley Snipes' character... <laughs> recruits random street gang members to confront the Yakuza who are following him and Sean Connery. It's laughably bad. It's the worst scene in the film. It doesn't enhance the plot in any way. You could really cut it out and it would improve the film.
1: Yeah, it really didn't make any sense because they probably would have, like the random gang members would have known Snipes was a cop and they would have no incentive to help a cop.
0: Yeah, they They all knew him, apparently. They're like, aren't you Spiderweb Smith?
1: Didn't you drop 40 points in that game?
0: It was 48. like 50.
2: Uh, that is maybe not the greatest scene to add to the movie, but isolated from everything else, him turning Connor's words back on him, don't move your arms quickly, you know, all that stuff was pretty funny. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and right. Then the dude... The dude <laughs> Number one, ripping the windshield wiper off and offering t- to wipe his windows. And the other guy just cutting a hole in the convertible top. I thought were just like classic, ridiculous things to add to a movie. But it's funny, even if it doesn't add anything at all to the movie.
0: You might as well be watching The Naked Gun. It felt
1: goofy. It did feel out of place.
0: Like the, the cartoonish xenophobia from Harvey Keitel's character. Like that's all in the novel and it's, it's part of the plot. So you can overlook it. But I just wanted to, there's no way to talk about this film without talking about that, just that scene in particular, because it, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And then it, as far as the other stuff, not necessarily um, racial, but the scene that cracks me up, um, there's a scene where, where Connery and Snipes are, they're being shown how advanced technology works. They, they uses like the Photoshop techniques, what's, a, what's, a, what's essentially known as a deep fake today. It's either the most or least dated thing in the film, depending on how you look at it.
1: Yeah, and, and there was a bit about technology and, like, what was cutting edge that I was like, that's really not cutting edge in 93. Like, when they were in the surveillance room with a security guard, he was like, look <laughs> at this gizmo. You got to use the gizmo to use the, the camera. We don't have anything like this in America. It's like, what, what, video that lets you zoom
0: in? Like, what?
1: Or, like, have impeccable, like, audio. <laughs>
2: So I know this, all this stuff seems kind of strange, but this is the, the Michael Crichton schtick is yeah. warning about technology uh and the danger, the inherent dangers of technology. And it's, you know, it's the same thing in Jurassic Park. I mentioned it. Timeline before, it's the same thing in Timeline. It's like misusing technology for not the greater good uh, is a consistent theme in all of his books is that people are doing technology related things. They're abusing the system. They're taking advantage of it. And this is just another instance of that in his his books.
0: And this was also the era, too. They don't really do this in films anymore, but this was the, uh, the long recurring trope of like, man, the Japanese have stuff that we couldn't even imagine. And the production itself, I thought Philip Kaufman directed this pretty well, but there are a couple strange editing decisions that really stuck out to me on the last rewatch. So when when Connor and Smith are going through Cheryl Lynn's apartment and that other blonde comfort girl walks in. Wesley Snipes starts ogling her and then the camera just goes out of focus and it dissolves to just him and Connor in the car. It's, it's filmed like some kind of David Lynch movie and I, I'm not really sure why it's in the film. It, it really stood out to me.
2: I kind of took that as, that was right after Wesley Snipes did the cocaine you found in the apartment. Uh, did the cocaine in quotations he sampled the cocaine. I took it as like him blurring the line between real and not or or something like that. But it was, uh, I kind of understood that it's just like a an easy way to transition out of that scene. But yeah, I, I can understand how it's strange. And it is an odd cut from one place to the other in that movie.
0: By the way, John Connor is the one that shoots him in the back, right? Like that's pretty clear.
1: So it did take me reading some analysis and then thinking about the scene a bit more. And you interpret it, right, is that. Connor was protecting snipes by shooting him, knowing that he had a, the bulletproof vest on. Yeah, yeah
2: I, I, under, I understood it as Connor handing him that bulletproof vest was included to, to directly remind you later on or to tell you that he was definitely the one that shot him.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's nothing else that makes sense, right? It, it couldn't have been any of the Yakuza slash Japanese security people who apparently were armed with samurai swords that they used to uh, kill Eddie Sakamura which is one of the stranger scenes in the film where he just like confronts them and tries to fight them all and then dies.
2: And he almost did beat them all. And then suddenly there's a glimmering sword uh, that was not seen previously. And I thought that was pretty strange.
0: Yeah. The cinematography I found kind of boring. It's almost filmed like a TV movie. And it really surprised me because the director of photography is a guy named Michael Chapman and he shot a lot of stuff including another film from the same year, The Fugitive, which is really well filmed. And he even got an Oscar nomination for it. He also shot stuff like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Ghostbusters 2, Space Jam. So pretty high profile stuff. But I don't know the, the, this movie's the cinematography is pretty boring.
1: Yeah, flat's probably the best way to put it. Nothing very gorgeous about much of the scenes, just very kind of on the nose. Like this is what's happening.
0: Yeah, it, it's fine. I just I don't know. Is it
2: supposed to show the, I don't know, the uglier side of LA in the early 90s? Is it not bright and colorful because they don't want it to be bright and colorful?
1: Possibly. I possibly get this. Um, I read, I I think if I was reading correctly, where they were doing the analysis showing like swapping heads between Connery and Wesley Snipes in the video, that was supposed to be at USC. Or they don't make it clear, but reading the analysis is like, uh, I think either it was in the novel or like. Uh, that, that it's supposed to be set at USC, but they kind of make it look like a dump.
0: I think you're right. I think it, it is mentioned in the novel. The only part that I felt was like visually interesting, it's real quick and it kind of cracked me up. Early in the film when Snipes goes to pick Connery up at his house, he, he apparently lives above a fish market from Blade Runner. <laughs> there's just I a mean- guy chopping up tuna and there's like purple light. It, it's really strange. But the other part of the production I really enjoyed, the score by uh, Toru Takamitsu. Really effective. I really enjoy it. Very atmospheric. It's not too heavy on the Japanese influences. I really enjoyed it.
2: It's subtle. It doesn't get in the way of the movie.
0: Well, that's all I have for the reasons. (laughs) Do either of you have anything to add before we wrap this up? We talked about the plot, the acting, the racial stuff, some of the thoughts on the production. What do we think?
1: Oh, man. I mean, I think we're ready to jump into whether or not we liked it.
0: I'd like to go first, even though, Tyler, you're the guest, if you don't mind. I don't want anyone else's opinion of this to influence mine. Fair Fair enough. I've mentioned this several times already. I like this film quite a bit. I understand it has flaws, but this is a movie I have rewatched a lot. And I never tire of re-watching it. There's some weird racial stuff. There's some weird editing choices. I, I think the criticism about the plot being dense is certainly fair. But to me, it's one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies. The two leads are so compelling and have such great chemistry together that I, I'm willing to overlook some of the plot flaws. Connery and Snipes are phenomenal on screen together. It's the film's biggest strength, and Philip Kaufman knew where his bread was buttered because he gives us a lot of scenes of these two actors together. And if you're going to watch this movie for one reason, it's that. You get to see these two superstars working together with great chemistry, playing off each other. I could have watched a whole series of movies where John Connor and Webb Smith solve crimes. A a Sherlock Holmes-style miniseries would have been amazing. And I do think the actual murder mystery itself is compelling. The murder and everything surrounding it, I think it's a pretty unique premise, even with all the heavy-handed Japanese stuff that Crichton was trying to shove down our throats. I always found this film underrated. The Rotten Tomato score is just bizarre to me. And I really hope that this episode brings some positive light for our listeners. If you ever see this available on Netflix or anywhere else, give it a try. It's a re- it's a movie I really recommend. It's a little bit dated in some ways, but it's one of my favorite movies that we're probably ever going to cover on this podcast. I give it a B plus. I think it's a very rewatchable movie. That's Tyler, it.
1: would you like to go next? Yeah, I'll take a stab at
2: this. This movie for me is the definition of a B movie. It is, I think, campy. I think it's it feels like a movie straight out of the eighties with like the ABC linear plot, of course with the Japanese stuff thrown into uh, mess with your head a little bit. Again, because I read the book first, uh, and because it took me probably five or six years between reading the book and learning that there was a movie of the book or a movie adaptation of the book, uh, I, it it holds a special place for me. I can watch this. That being said, I have not watched this movie in probably close to a decade. Uh, if it had not been for us having this podcast today. I probably would have blissfully gone on and not watched it anytime in the near future either. Again, you know, having two big names, Snipes and Connery, uh, it should immediately drag any listener in. Uh, it should immediately give you some idea of what's going to happen. This is it a, a Sean Connery movie? Uh, and you're going to get Sean Connery acting, and Wesley Snipes is in it as Wesley Snipes. It's not really acting either way. But yeah, I, I would totally watch this movie again. I would watch it on repeat if I had to. Again, it's a, it's a B movie for me. I think it crosses off all the, the dots for, you know, a, a solid movie to watch, uh, a good partway between action, partway between thriller, partway between talking movie, uh, and it, it hits all the notes for me. Um, yeah, so a B, solid B for me.
1: Well said, Tyler. It's really tough because, you know, I was, I was telling Pat this, you know, before the recording, I had to really think, like, you know, why would I want to give this film a lower score because I keep thinking, like, you know, I want to give this film a really good score. And I had to think objectively what was, you know, some some negatives to it. I do think that the plot is a, a little confusing. And I think, like, for for me, it maybe takes a little bit away from the enjoyment. But at the same time, like, even when I look at it, I just appreciate it so much more because it's a bit unconventional in that way. And then even then stuff about like the racial commentary, I think that made a lot of people uncomfortable at the time in the early 90s and being able to address it even today. There's a lot of, you know, probably parallels in the modern news of just like political commentary of just American economics and how how it fits globally that uh, you could probably make a, a similar film today about like maybe another country and then find people also finding that uncomfortable. But at the same time, I have to give credit to even just like approach a subject and even dive into it so much um, to provide detail and really build out this world in the film um, that we were able to explore and have a great time because of such a strong cast, um, because of such a strong vision from um, the writer and the director. So I really enjoyed this film and, you know, I have to give it a solid B. And it's just something that I really will watch more intentionally, uh, more frequently. I agree with you, Pat. I hope that recording this and putting this out there really gets more listeners to, wa- uh, to watch it and, and brings a bit more love and light uh, to this film.
0: Wonderful. I'm so glad that you liked it, Anton. I, I had no idea what you were going to rate it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I-, I like it, man. It's good.
0: It's always puzzled me. I've always felt it was underrated. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us once again as a regular guest.
2: Thank you guys for having me. This is a unique movie. and I think maybe a forgotten gem somewhat.
0: Uh, So I'm happy to bring it back to,
2: I guess, the the current time to remind people it even exists. It's always a pleasure, Tyler.
0: Indeed. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah, and that's it. That's it for Rising Sun. Anton, I believe the next film we're going to cover is another anniversary series. I think it's going to be Cleopatra.
1: It's a huge film and wow, what a film to talk about.
0: Yeah, it's the 60th anniversary. Tyler, have you ever seen this?
1: I only know of the lore around it. More power to
2: you <laughs> for doing that one. I
0: got to say it's it's 4 hours long. It was it was not easy to get through. I had to watch it it's in a like long basically life. I think basically I watched an hour at a time, so like four separate sittings. Not necessarily a bad movie, but 4 hours is just it's it's, it's obnoxious.
1: Well, listeners get excited for that. And, and like you said, Pat, again, thank you, Tyler, for, for being on the episode. And we can't wait to record again soon.
0: Indeed. Yeah. And we will see you next time on Why Wasn't It Better? Take care.